That's Psalm 49, and then I'm hoping in two weeks, September, I guess it be September 11, we'll look at Psalm 50, and then after that, just pick up uh, John and Exodus, uh, respectively, in the morning and the evening, concluding kind of our summer in the Psalms. So Psalm 49, we'll uh, read the entire thing and uh, also take a look at uh, the entire thing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, we ask that your Holy Spirit would be at work. We need the truths found in here. We need not just to hear them, but also to think about them, to have the Holy Spirit take them and sort through our lives so that afterward uh, we may uh, see where we have to grow, repent of the sins we need to repent of, and cling to the salvation that you provided us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we pray that you work a miracle as we ask every week. For Jesus' sake, amen. Psalm 49, hear this, all peoples, give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom, the meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb, I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me? those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches. Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice, that he should live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that even the wise die, the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations, though they called lands by their own names. Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence. Yet after them, people approve of their boasts. Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed. And though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers, who will never again see light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to our hearts and lives uh, this morning. So beloved congregation of hope and everyone with us here this morning, uh, Jonathan Edwards commenting on this psalm in uh, general said, uh, there can be no greater evidence of the degeneracy of mankind than their fond pursuits after the things which are light and momentary and their willful neglect of those which are of the greatest value and concern. What he's referring to are the things that are light and momentary or just wealth, money. We're going to look at that throughout the psalm and the neglect of what's most substantive and important, which is our souls and particularly our eternal life or what we're going to spend forever after we go to the grave. Psalm 49 is a wisdom psalm. Uh, it gives us quite a bit of wisdom. Sounds uh, in some ways almost like a proverb. And as we walk through it, um, I want us to... Uh, notice that the wisdom it teaches us is, is, is this. This is what the, the psalm teaches us, that pursuing money and wealth is a waste of human life, the ultimate futility, 
because money and wealth are of extremely limited usefulness and cannot do your soul any good. And I want us to look at five things, the pervasiveness of wealth, the effects of wealth, the inability of wealth, the division of wealth, and then finally, some wisdom regarding wealth, which is where the psalmist ends up. So first of all, the universality or the pervasiveness of wealth. This is not a great outline, but here's, here's what I'm getting at. If you look at the first four verses, hear this all peoples, give ear all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom, the meditation of my heart shall be understanding. Notice the universal language, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. The wisdom found in the psalm isn't just for believers or unbelievers, not just for the rich or just for the poor. It's actually for every human being on the planet. It's just general wisdom for the world as we look out on it. There's not one so poor and lowly as to be beneath the warning of the psalm, or one so rich and mighty as to be above having to submit to this psalm and obey its truths or face the consequences. This is a psalm that we have to listen to ourselves. You know, sometimes there's passages that we read or hear unfolded to us and we think, I wish so-and-so could hear it, and we can think that legitimately so. That there's passages which apply, might apply to someone that's not in our life circumstance, and we say, I'd, I'd, I'd just love it if they could hear this. I think it could be so useful to them. This is not one of those. This is speaking to every single one of us in this room. It addresses every single human being, regardless of our station in life. So the effect, so the, the issue of accumulating wealth and money is pervasive, it's universal. It has to do with every human being. Secondly, I want us to notice the effects of wealth. So if you look at verse five, why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches? There are two effects that wealth has upon people. Or I should say there are two people groups affected by wealth. The poor are affected and the rich are affected in different ways. So first of all, take a look at the poor, the effect of wealth upon the poor. For those who don't have much wealth, the lack of wealth is often a temptation to live in what? Look at the passage. Why should I fear in times of trouble? For those of us who don't have a lot of money, it is tempting to live in fear of those who do have it, to live in fear of circumstances where money could buy us out of a difficult circumstance or a troubled circumstance, to live in fear of those who can use their money to actually do us harm. Uh, 19th century American pastor G.C. Lorimer uh, wrote this. I read that a Glasgow bank director convicted of having appropriated half a million sterling, half a million pounds, was sentenced to eight months imprisonment. And that on the same day, a little half-starved boy charged with stealing cake worth a half a penny was sentenced to 14 days hard labor and four years in a, reform a reformatory. One law for the rich, another for the poor. His point is this. If you have money, you can buy your way out of a lot of circumstances. If you don't, then it is very, you will end up in circumstances that the rich wouldn't end up in. And it's very possible to live in fear, to live a life of fear because you don't have much money. So that's the effect that not having wealth has on the poor, temptation to live out of fear. There's two effects that uh, wealth has upon the rich, those who have the money. 
The first, if you look at verse 6, is to trust in your wealth. Those who trust in their wealth. Now, the word trust has to do with feeling secure or sure, and it has to do with reliance. So many people, money causes people to feel secure, to feel as though they need nothing and no one else for help and support. This is why Jesus, this also transfers over to the spiritual world, which is why Jesus said it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to go through your eye of a needle. Why? Because if you have lots of money in this life, you can feel secure physically. That also transfers over into our spiritual life. I'm fine. I don't need any help in or for the afterlife. I am doing great. And the story is told of a farmer who became actually quite successful. He decided to stop farming and retire early. And since he had built up a really large savings account, he could do that. And he sat around basically doing nothing, just hanging out, um, enjoying the weather and uh, taking, uh, taking it easy throughout the day. And the message that he began preaching to his soul was this in Luke chapter 12, 19. Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. That's the effect that money has on the soul. Catch, he's preaching to his soul. Soul, you've got lots of money. Soul, you can relax, take it easy, and spend your life being merry. And the Lord interrupted that dream, as it were, with a, a nightmare. Fool, this night your soul is required of you. So money has the effect on the wealthy of causing them to feel self-reliant and at ease in this life. Also regarding the next life too. Secondly, it causes them to boast, verse 6. They boast of the abundance of their riches. Now the word to boast actually means to shine or to flash forth, to radiate. So it wealthy riches cause a human being to brag about it to let other people know, hey, here's what I've got, to show off wealth one way or another, whether through what is purchased or whether through word of mouth, but wealth demands to be spoken of. And people, the effect that wealth has on the rich is that they speak about it and they let the world know about it. Now, here's the mistake that both the poor and the rich make. They make the same mistake. They make too much of money. The poor think that to live without it is just the worst thing in the world and the scariest thing in the world. The rich think that to have it is the most blessed thing in the world. They both make the same mistake. They make too much of money. Both overestimate the power of wealth. And then right after we see that both overestimate the power of wealth, we walk into verse seven and we see the powerlessness of wealth or the inability or the impotence of wealth. Verse seven, truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that even the wise die, the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations, though they called lands by their own names. Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. And just notice a few things. The first of all, the first one is this. No amount of money can save a person from death. Verse seven, truly no man can ransom another. Now, Albert, it's interesting language here. Truly or no man ransoming can ransom another. In the Hebrew, the word ransom or, or redeem in older translations is actually used twice to really make the point. 
which is where we're getting truly no man can ransom another. It's not possible. Albert Barnes put it this way. The whole expression is emphatic. Redeeming, he cannot redeem. That is, according to Hebrew usage, he cannot possibly do it. It cannot be done. The object is to show how powerless and valueless is wealth in regard to the things that most pertain to a man's welfare. It can literally do nothing in that which most deeply affects man and in which he most needs help, namely avoiding the grave and having gone to the grave, being redeemed out of it. Another way of saying this is if you assemble together all the world's wealth, think of, let's just take the wealth of like America, China, Germany, and Japan, four uh, fairly wealthy countries if you take them as a whole, looking at their GDP. If you took all that wealth and came before the Lord and said, we'd like to purchase one person's ransom from the grave so that they don't die. This isn't talking ransom out of the grave at this point in this verse. Just we're, we've assembled together trillions and trillions of dollars in order to make sure that one person won't see the grave so that they can live on in this world forever. That would not even buy that person an extra 30 seconds. It's not possible. Money can't do that. Why? Because human life is too valuable. It's too costly. So all the world's money can't extend the life of anybody uh, for even one day. Uh, two and a half years ago, the University College London and Harvard University, among some other universities, researched the effects of wealth on a person's quality of life after 50. And they discovered that a person who is wealthy will have eight to nine more years of disability-free life, meaning you can get out of bed, uh, live on your own, make your own meals, etc. A person who's wealthy will have eight to nine more years of disability-free living after 50 uh, than someone who's poor. In other words, let's say you live 30 years after you're 50. For those who are rich, they'll have 20 years where life is really good, they can live on their own. The poor will have 10 years or 11 years by comparison. But you know what they didn't discover? They didn't discover that a wealthy person can buy their way out of death. Wealth can buy you better health care, better pharmaceutical drugs, prescription drugs, better doctors, but it can't buy you out of death because every single person in that study ended up dying. Not one of them made it past death. They may have lived a higher quality life by God's common grace, but not a one of them escaped death. Spurgeon said of this, the rich man cannot save a comrade from the grave. They may pay the physician, but they cannot bribe death. How little is the power of wealth after all? The rich man cannot save even his baby that he loves so well. He certainly cannot save his fellow sinner. Something else that I want us to notice about the impotence of wealth, just that it can't save, but also everyone who has money must leave their wealth to someone else. No one has ever figured out a way to take even a single penny with them to heaven or hell, even though some have tried. If you look at verse 10, the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. And there's this 19th century English Congregationalist pastor, John Lafechild, came across this a while back, and he told this interesting story of a member of his church who'd been a member of his church for quite a while. And he was on his deathbed going through a lot of difficulty, and he wanted comfort. So we asked the pastor to come over and provide him uh, comfort. And uh, the he, he said, you know, I've neglected supporting the church and the kingdom of God. I'd like to make amends with it. What should I do? And the pastor just encouraged him, this John encouraged him, look, just 
believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and cling to him. He's the only thing that matters at this point. And the guy was pretty disappointed. He had evidence being covetousness his whole life. And he, the pastor said he gazed at me with a look of disappointment upon a hint being given to me to ask into his thought at that moment. I questioned him very pointedly. And to my astonishment and horror, he reluctantly disclosed to me the fact that while thus seemingly about to breathe his last, his hands were under the bedclothes, grasping the keys of his cabinet and treasures, lest they should be taken from him soon after he departed this life. So this guy's dying. He's on his deathbed. He, he's, up, he's within a few hours of dying. Underneath, he's got like his safety deposit box key, and he's clenching it. He doesn't want anybody else to have it. But what he experienced and discovered is that when you die, all the wealth you have gets left to somebody else. It's just simply what takes place. You can't take wealth with you. The common phrase, you don't see a horse, a hearse pulling a U-Haul, right? <laughs> you might see a horse or a team of horses pulling a U-Haul, but you won't see a hearse pulling it. Why? Because it's not possible to take anything with us when we leave. Something else I want us to notice about the impotence of wealth is the rich work hard to leave their mark on this world, naming things after themselves, building buildings, buying fields with their name on them, just to try to be remembered and just so that future generations will marvel at their greatness. Verse 11, they called lands by their own names. Just a testament to what people who have a lot of money often do. They want their names splattered all over placards. They want their name listed all over the world so that the world will remember them, that the world will know not just this generation, but for generations after, who they are, and that when they lived, they were indeed rich and wealthy. And living to accumulate wealth and leave your mark on this world in the hopes that such a worm as I once crawled upon this portion of the earth is maybe the greatest example of futility. Spurgeon, he calls the land by his own name that it may never be forgotten that such a worm as he once crawled over that portion of the earth. What is the point, right? Big deal. So you go all over the world and you see monuments and buildings and parks named after people. And that's, that's fine. But for the people that do it in order to be remembered, what benefit does that provide them? Nothing. They're in the grave. There is no benefit to having something named after you. If a man didn't want to be forgotten, he would spend all of his efforts believing in Jesus following Jesus and living for a kingdom where once you enter, you are never forgotten. And your name isn't written on a building, right? Your name's written in heaven. Your name's written in the book of life. Now that's something worth being remembered. That's a day, the last day when this happens and all the scrolls will be open, that's the day everybody wants to be remembered, not for naming a building, not for naming some monument to how rich we were in this world but for being named, for belonging to the Lamb who was slain before the foundations of the world. That will be a register that we'll want to be named on. All the titles behind people's names that people have worked for, all the statues that they have worked to gain, all the statuses they've worked to gain before men, all the lands and houses they've worked to buy, all the money and gold they have, a set, they have amassed, how worthless and ridiculous all these things are when that person is lowered into the ground in a casket. Take a look at verse eight. The ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. What this passage teaches us and the rest of the Bible is that human life is extremely valuable, which is why the cost of human life is so high. We miss this by nature. 
how valuable human life is. We think that money can somehow provide value to human life. Human life is infinitely more valuable than all the money in the world. It's why you can't buy someone out of the grave. But our Lord knows this and he gets this right and he knows this. It's why he didn't send a check from heaven, but he sent Jesus Christ from heaven. How valuable is a human life? So valuable that it takes the Son of God to ransom it, to redeem it. And God knows this. God values human life more than we do. Isn't that fascinating? God values the lives of image bearers more than any of us image bearers by nature do. Now that is amazing. And he proves it by sending his son into the world to live as what? A human being. Why? So that human beings could be redeemed free of charge, everyone who believes in Jesus. God values human life tremendously. One more thing I want us to notice is the division that wealth brings. We'll see this in verses 13 through 15. It divides between unbeliever or wealth worshipers and believers. And so far in the psalm, it's been speaking generally about how wealth affects people and how people handle wealth. There's been no divisions between believers and unbelievers in this. But beginning in verse 13, we see a parting of ways, as it were. Verses 13 and 14 describe an unbeliever and their path, and verse 15 describes a believer. So take a look with me, if you would, at verses 13 and 14. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence, yet after them people approve of their boasts. Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol, death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning." So the unbeliever's path is first unfolded. And the, path, the first path is that of the unbeliever. And the first thing I want us to notice is that they have a confidence that is foolish. Catch that. They have a foolish confidence because their confidence and hope is in their money, not in God. Wealth not stewarded by a Christian who's got their head on straight causes people to be foolishly confident to make the big mistake of being confident and feeling secure in this world. So that's the path of an unbeliever, a wealth worshiper, we'll call that person, is they're foolishly confident. They are also surrounded with people who listen to and hang on their every word, verse 13, yet after them people approve of their boast. So you can see this even down uh, to today. You won't see any TED Talks, at least I'm not sure there are any, about poor people talking about how to become poor. I'm not aware of any, there might be. There'll probably be a, a satirical uh, TED Talk, a little bit of com comedy in there. But you'll see thousands of videos and thousands of books written about rich people who become rich. And that's one thing, but what's quite astonishing is the number of people that buy those books and hang on their every word, as if that was the ticket to life, as if that was the gospel, like the real good news, like the thing that cures all ills. People eat that stuff up. They approve of their boasts. And the one more element about the path of an unbeliever. So they have foolish confidence. They have tons of people that are basically saying, oh yeah, you're amazing. Give us every nugget of wisdom you've got. So they've got a, a crowd around them as it were. And then death will be their shepherd. Death will be their shepherd. Instead of having Jesus Christ as their shepherd, the Lord as their shepherd, Death is their shepherd. It's stark language 
The Expositor's Bible Commentary put it this way. I thought it was so helpful. What the psalmist means is that men who make wealth their ruling aim are in very deed the sheep of death. It is death whom they have chosen for their shepherd instead of God, the author and source of life. It is death who finds pasture for them while they live and who, when they die, drives them to his fold in the unseen world. Think of it, the sheep of death. Was there ever a more grisly and dreadful metaphor? People who worship wealth, money, and everything that money can buy, people who worship that have death as their shepherd. Death is not a good shepherd. It leads to the grave and to the destruction, the eternal destruction that comes after it. That's the grisly picture here put forward by the psalmist in Psalm 49. But there's a really good path, the other one, verse 15. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Notice the language, the power of Sheol, it's literally the hand of Sheol. So you can think of Sheol as having like a grip. And everyone who goes to the realm of the grave is in the grip of death, the hand of death. And that grip cannot be broken. It's an inviolable grip unless God shows up to break that grip. And what the psalmist is speaking of is a grip that God breaks. God will ransom my soul from the hand, the grip of Sheol. God's the only one who can do it. And the word ransom just has to do with money. Think of the commercial world that you can be, uh, you, you use to buy certain things so that certain things transfer ownership from the previous owner to you. Ransom or redeem, you just, you just spend money to buy something so that it no longer belongs to the, the person you bought it from, but it belongs to you. So money can't buy anybody out of death, but God has a currency, a money that will buy you out of hell. Notice the language, but God. It's tremendous, beginning verse 15, but God. So money's powerless. It creates foolish confidence. It creates self-reliance and assurance. It creates worshipers who think you're all that in a bag of chips and everybody wants to find out about how you got it. And then you end up in death because death was your shepherd and you are stuck there forever. But God, God has a way out of it. He has a way out of the grip of death, and he does this by a ransom. Now, a ransom, again, is just a price paid to have something undergo a change of ownership. So you can think the ransom for a new car these days, a used car for that matter, is a lot, right? It's a big price to ransom a car from the previous title owner to you being the title owner. That's what a ransom is. What is astonishing is what God paid to ransom people from the grave. Here's a hint, 1 Corinthians 6.20, you are not your own for you are bought with a price. Paul doesn't tell us what the price was there. But if you search throughout scripture, we get all out answers some places and the ransom for the price of a human being is quite astonishing. Here's a few. 1 Peter 1, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. Remember, money can't ransom a human being but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Titus 2.14, Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us or ransom us. Acts 20.28, 20, God obtained the church with his own blood. That's the price. That's the ransom price. 
to buy a human being out of the grave and out of an eternity and eternal punishment in hell. And God has paid that ransom price through Jesus Christ, his son. He has sent another human being, which is what Jesus Christ is, fully God, fully man. He sent another human being, a perfect one, in our place in order to redeem us and bring us from our old ownership under Satan, sin, the world, into his ownership. We're bought with a price. We're not our own anymore. Now we belong to him. So the great divide between those who worship and serve money and those who worship and serve Jesus Christ is this. Wealth worshipers cling to green-colored paper printed by the U.S. Treasury for deliverance from death and hell. But believers cling to a God-provided payment that brings them eternal life through Jesus Christ. And if you want to boil it down, I remember somebody saying this, I thought it was really helpful. To worship something that goes in, one side is a piece of cotton, basically, comes out with a bunch of green stuff and a few water labels on it. To worship that as a savior and to have confidence in that is just the most utter, utterly ridiculous thing in the world that any human being could do. It used to be a used to be in a farm field in Mississippi, right? In a cotton field somewhere. <laughs> and now you're bowing down to worship it. We haven't come anywhere from the old idol worship where we fashioned a God. At least they made their gods out of silver, right? And gold. Now we're doing it out of cotton. We're going backwards. But to have God and worship him, to have Jesus Christ and to know him means we're redeemed out of those futile ways. We're redeemed out of this idolatry. And now we have eternal life instead of death as our shepherd. A few closing thoughts. The wisdom to handle wealth. If you take a look at verses 16 through the end, we're getting some kind of concluding nuggets of wisdom. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed. And though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers who will never again see light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. So first kind of encouragement, I guess. We'll call these applications, I guess, if we want. First up, don't be afraid and don't live your life in fear of those who grow in riches and build bigger houses or drive fancier cars or dress in better clothes or take better vacations or send their kids to a more exclusive and expensive college. Don't pay attention to any of that kind of stuff. Don't live in fear of that. Some wealthy people might be your friends. If they're believers, that wealth is what? It's a test. And it's a test that very, non-Christians don't see it as a test, they see it as a blessing. If you've got wealth, you've got a massive test on your hands. You've got to steward that without letting your heart go after it. Have fun with that. That's a hard trial and challenge. So keep that in mind. Don't be afraid when other people increase in riches. Don't be afraid of that. Don't live in fear of them. Don't live in fear of what may happen to you if you don't get more money. The amount of money a person has is not the measure of that person. The world says it is, but the kingdom of God says different. Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Second thing I'd like us to consider, if you take a look at verse 17, when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. The longest anyone can profit from the riches is about 80 years, let's say. Maybe you'll live to 120 and be the world's longest living person. 
uh, in modern history, right? They have nothing on Methuselah, but uh, maybe we'll live till 60 years old. But let's say the average person lives to about 80 years old. That's the longest any human being can enjoy the earthly wealth. That's it. Because when we get to heaven, this earthly wealth, which will pale in comparison to the heavenly treasures that belong to Jesus Christ that he's going to share with us when the meek inherit the earth. There's just no comparison between the two. So as we look at this and think, you know what, I, I'm afraid I really need to become wealthy so that I don't get trampled on and life goes better for me. Huh? The longest that could benefit you if you were born into an inheritance of a few million dollars and you kept that money your whole life and even built it, the longest it could benefit and bless you is 80 years and that's it. And then when that 80 years is done, it's done. And it's no longer a blessing to you. And if your heart trusted in it and you worshiped it, it will have become actually your greatest curse. And what maybe your parents intended for your good and giving you an inheritance actually was something that just strangled your soul all the way to the pit of hell. And so just keep that in mind that when he dies, the rich man, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. Once a person dies, their interest in the world ceases. It's just over. It's finished. Third thing I want us to notice is if all the glory of wealth is that fleeting, how stupid we would be to live for that kind of glory and revere those who lived for it and succeeded in obtaining it. it just ridiculous, right? If Psalm 49 is true, and if this language is really accurate, and it is, this, the psalm is really written by the Holy Spirit, then how ridiculous and dumb would we be, just like beasts, just like animals, not even thinking would we be to worship those who have wealth, to worship wealth if we one day have it or have it right now, we'd be no different than an animal. A fourth thing I want us to notice is people who praise, there are people who praise the wealthy. Verse 18, you get praise when you do well for yourself. Don't count yourself or anyone else blessed who has become successful in business or in obtaining money, but is far from the Lord. Such a person is not ultimately successful, but tragically mistaken. To have tons, the world will say, if you've made a lot of money, then you are tremendously blessed. But to have a ton of money and be far from the Lord is maybe the biggest curse in the world. To be far from the Lord may buy you 80 years of fun, enjoyment, living on yachts, or just having a nice house and going to work every day and not having the fear of not being able to pay for something. It may buy you that. But if you have all that apart from the Lord, then you've got a massive curse just like the poor person does. And you'll see this incredible reversal where you went from a life of having everything to an eternal death of having nothing but wrath and curse and loneliness and vacancy and void. A fifth thing, the greatest day for a wealth worshiper is one of the days of their life. Verse 19, he will never again see light. So maybe one of the most distressing, hopeless, stark ways of putting what happens to somebody who dies away from the Lord. They will never again, never see light. That means that for a wealth worshiper, one who's made money their God and has never repented and believed in Jesus Christ, their best day of existence will have been maybe their 10th grade birthday party, their 10th, their, 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 their 10th birthday party, right? It may have been their 25th year when they got married and they had a celebration. And here's the kicker. They didn't even know it was their best day. It just came 
and it just went. And they had tons of fun, but they're still thinking maybe there's a better day. And if their best day was in year 30, then starting in year 31, they've had nothing but worse days since. And they will wake up one day where there is no light and there is no hope of a better day at all. Never. All of that is extinguished and cast out. That's maybe the one, one of the most eye-opening, sobering aspects of this psalm. If you want to worship money, go for it. Okay. But just know that after you go down to see the grave, you have lived your best day in your existence. A Christian has it entirely flipped around, praise the Lord. That to believe in Jesus and live a poor, Lazarus life means that when you die, you've got an infinite number of infinitely better days that are all going to be alike in an amazing way to look forward to. You haven't even come close to living your best day, not even close when you die in the Lord. Money is deceitful. It preaches a lie. The sermon it preaches to every person is this, obtain me and you will have life. Fail to obtain me and you will miss out and never have happiness or joy. The truth is this, live for money and you will die unhappy and spend an eternity unhappier. Obtain Jesus Christ and you will die with joy. You'll actually just go to sleep. And you'll spend an eternity experiencing joy unbounded. For those who don't believe, for any that we know who don't believe, look, the great heartache of man is that the majority of all human beings born into this world will live in order to become successful in life. And some will achieve it and some will die trying, not having achieved it. And then they'll die. And when they die, they will discover that the success they achieved or wanted to achieve did nothing but bring them hell. Literally. Some people crave an inheritance in this world. Some crave an inheritance to give to others in this world, all the while completely refusing the greatest inheritance that has ever been handed down in Jesus Christ that's free to all who believe in him. Don't be like the beast that perish. That's the message of the psalm. Unthinking man who doesn't have a new heart, who doesn't have a mind that's being renewed, is like the beast that perish. The point, don't be like the beast that perish. They come into this world, they don't turn their brain on, they don't start thinking through what's coming next. They live on what? Instinct, the moment, reacting to things, going after only what they can see. Don't be like an animal. Think, beloved. Think about why we're here. Think about what's coming. Think about enjoying treasure that's been stored up in heaven that you can enjoy for a million years just getting warmed up versus storing up treasure on earth that can be stolen and you can only enjoy it for seven years. Just think about that, right? An animal can't think or process that. Human beings can. Don't be like a beast. Don't be like a cow. Don't be like an elephant. Don't be like a rhinoceros, right? Don't be a dumb animal. That's an encouragement from the psalm for all of us. Mark 8, 36, Jesus said it this way. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world? <laughs> now that's a lot, right? Nobody in this current world has the whole world. To gain everything that all the wealth in every country, what profit does it gain? What, prop, what does a profit man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Believer, you will soon leave everything behind you've worked for or inherited and you will leave it behind to someone else. All our hopes and our dreams in this life will come to an end 
and we will be laid in the grave, whether rich or poor, and we will receive an inheritance that is lavish, that is permanent, that is eternal, free of charge in Jesus Christ. That's what Peter says to set our hope fully on the revelation of the day of Jesus Christ when he finally comes and all the things we're hoping for, all the things that our hearts and the Holy Spirit is stirring in us to say, almost like a fairy tale, it's true, it's true, it's true. And the eyes of our flesh say, don't believe it, don't believe it. One day that fairy tale is going to come true. And we're going to look back on everything in this world that had to do with money and possessions and say, I'm sorry, Lord, for every minute that I ever lived for it, that I ever worshiped it. Thank you for delivering me out of that miserable world of chasing money just to die and have no answer for death. And thank you for giving me eternal life. Let's pray.